The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Psalm 94, Psalmist writes these words. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, and the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, he knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. And whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help... My soul would have soon lived in a land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, it held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Let's pray together. God, you are awesome and you are mighty beyond our understanding. You are merciful, and you are kind, and you are gracious, and you are loving. And for those things, we are eternally grateful. But the psalmist reminds us this morning that you are much more than those things. You are a powerful God. A God who sees and hears everything. A God who directs the affairs of the world. A God who judges with Pure and good and true justice. A God who never overlooks evil. And a God who will bring vengeance one day on those who do evil. A God who knows what our lives are like. A God who knows the motivations of men's hearts. A God who has defined what is right and what is wrong. What is just and what is unjust. And a God who one day is going to make all things right that are wrong today. We live in a world, Lord, filled with evil. Evil men, evil women who do evil things. Who harm the weak. Who bring pain and difficulty in the lives of those who have no defense. People that stir up hatred and bitterness and anger and rebellion. People who serve their own interests and not the interests of others. People who sin without remorse. And think within their hearts that you don't see, that you don't know, and that you won't act. But your word, O Lord, tells us differently. You see all and you know all. And even if your hand is withheld for the moment, there is a day that's coming in which you will judge. 
the evil and the good. In which all those who do evil and perpetrate evil, kings and nations and individuals, will stand accountable before you. And as the psalmist has told us, you will wipe them out. The fact that evil even exists in our world today is, oh Lord, not a sign of your inaction, but a sign of your great patience, giving opportunity for men to repent and be made right with you before that great and mighty day comes. And so we pray for our world, we pray for our nation, we pray for our state and our city. We pray, Lord, that you would turn the hearts of of those who don't know you, those who serve the evil one, that you would turn their hearts toward you. We pray that the gospel would go out in power through the mouths of your people and from your churches into the community and that people would hear of the life-saving, life-changing power comes through repentance and faith in your son Jesus and that the evil would be through the gospel made righteous that those who stand condemned before you would be justified in the meantime father we thank you that you are a God who loves and protects your people a God who never forsakes your people even in the midst of evil and darkness a God who doesn't abandon His heritage. A God who, who guards and protects and cares for those who are faithful to You. We're thankful, Lord, that in moments of our life when we know how the psalmist feels, we feel like our foot is about to slip and we're about to go down. We have experienced what it means to have Your steadfast love hold us up. And we're thankful, Lord, that when the cares of our heart are many, that we can look to you and find cheering for our souls. We need that this morning, O oh Lord. Folks have come into this place to worship you, and some have come with, with very heavy hearts. Some have come with, with needs that go well beyond anything that I know or that anyone else in this room knows, but you know them. You know our every thought. You know our every breath. And there have some come this morning whose souls need to be cheered. Turn their eyes toward you this morning, Lord. Cause their eyes to look away from whatever pain and difficulty and distress and anxiety they've carried this morning into this place. Cause their eyes to look wholly and fully upon your son, Jesus. Remind them of your power and your might and your justice and your kindness and your goodness. Encourage them this morning. Encourage us all. We look to your word this morning, Lord. It's, it's, it's the gift you've given us. It is through it that you speak to us. It is through it that you discipline us. It is through it that you teach us. And we come with submissive hearts before you. Anxious, Lord, that you would show us yourself through your word that we would see ourselves rightly in contrast to you. Draw us this morning through your words of repentance and faith. Teach us, encourage us, change us. We're thankful for our pastor who's come this morning prepared to teach and to preach, and we pray that you would empower him by the power of your spirit. That your word might go out this morning power and authority and we believe it will not return void so our hearts are open do your work in us we pray for christ's sake amen turn in your bibles please to first peter shocker peculiar people in action um i i say that because in pastor greg's text last week verse nine i think or ten um, nine. <clears throat> the King James translates one little phrase in there, um, peculiar people talking about the church. It's the only time I really like the King James. Look around. 
It's appropriate, isn't it? There is a connection with last week's text and the upcoming text. The focus here in First Peter shifts. Um, so much so, we, we see clearly what Pastor Greg gave us in the very first message in First Peter is the theme of this. Is that slide still there, Ben? Christian living in a, in a hostile world. I couldn't remember it. Christian living in a hostile world. We see that most clearly beginning in the text now and moving forward and how important we need to understand this truth. So the, um, the, 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 the emphasis uh, shifts some beginning with our text today, the first section, mainly from chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 10. Encourages people to holiness, encourages people in their uh, relationships with each other. And and in the second section, what is our responsibility to those who are in authority over us? But he begins a little two-verse introductory appeal or plea here in verses 11 and 12 that we'll look at today. Most commentators see that this is uh, the beginning of the second major section um, of Peter's letter. But we need to understand it's not completely separate from that first section because they are, they are connected to everything else. This section is connected to everything else we've seen already. The, 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 the second section is based on the first, and hopefully we'll see that a few comments I'll make a little bit later. So, uh, the, the, what we've seen so far is the foundation for what we see moving ahead, particularly in this second section, which goes from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 11. And these two verses uh, today form an introduction and a theme to what follows believers that's what he's talked about up to this point who are who are these elect exiles he's writing this letter to believers should live as aliens and that's where we move to live as aliens in this world so that unbelievers would observe godly behavior in our lives and glorify God by coming to faith in Christ and so in, in verse 11 we see uh, that conduct in a negative sense. In verse 12, we see that conduct in a positive sense. And after verse 12, Peter shows us how do we live out that godly lifestyle and our submitting to people in authority and servants submitting to their masters and wives submitting to their husbands. And it moves forward from that. And the goal in every instance is to live in such a way that unbelievers will see it and glorify God, repent and believe, come to faith, actually flesh out the statement that we see here in verses 11 and 12. Let's look at those. Beloved, our beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Since these two verses form an introduction to the entire section, it's clear that Peter's intent here is mission. What is our mission? How do we go on mission? What is the mission call for the church in the first century? What is it today? First, in the negative sense, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But he gives three reasons for this 
type of conduct. In this case, the conduct is that which we abstain from. First, the, the first reason he gives us is our privileged relationship. He says, beloved. He calls us beloved. Who are the beloved? Who are these people he's talking to? Well, go back a couple of verses. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's where the King James says peculiar people. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the beloved. There they are. There are really two aspects to that word. First of all, these are people who are loved by God, and they are loved by Peter. He's writing to them. But the second part, uh, meaning for this word, is since they are elect and loved by God, because they are beloved, they are to live as God's people. What's the reason? One of the reasons for abstaining from sinful desires, well, because of who you belong to. You're beloved. Second reason is our pilgrimage and place here on this earth. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I urge you as many times in the New Testament that... that that parakaleo is the, the word there used to set off a new section of one of the epistles. I urge you just typically provide some sort of exhortation to holy living from the writer. Uh, we got several ex- examples of that too. <clears throat> Peter does the same thing. In Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Appeal, that's the same. Um, the translators could say, I urge you, therefore. Ephesians 4:1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Philippians 4, 2. Paul says, I entreat Eudodia, or I urge Eudodia, and I entreat or urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Apparently there was a little issue there. Philemon 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I appeal to you. I urge you. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, I Urger, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Hebrews 13:22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Urge, I urge you. And there are many, many, many other examples. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What are sojourners? Well, some of your translations may call us aliens. That would go right along with peculiar, wouldn't it? Parochos is the word that's used there. A term for people who live in a foreign land, but they keep their own citizenship. That's those people we see in chapter 1, verse 1. To those, he's writing to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's those people. They don't possess the same privileges and rights as the citizens of the country in which they live. Why? Because they're the elect. They're strangers in a world that's foreign to them. They live on this earth for only a brief time. Life is a vapor. They know the citizenship is in heaven. And Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven. 
In Ephesians 2.19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. The same language that Peter's using. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Your home is somewhere else. A.T. Robertson says, Christians whose fatherland is heaven. The reason... Peter calls them aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles, because they've been called out of the world. They're to be different from the world. We see that in verse 12. That being different will bring on slanderous talk. To use in this translation, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that being different means they will speak against you. The culture of that day in the first century for these elect exiles, the culture of that day was not accepting of Christianity. Now, how can we relate to all that? I've struggled how to address that this week. Because in this room today, there are Democrats and Republicans. I don't care about that. In this room today are biblical conservatives and liberals. I do care about that. I'd like to make a change there. In this room today are Christians and non-Christians. I do care about that. Believers and unbelievers... I'd like to make a change there, too. God can. And I have no intention of offending anyone here today. My goal is to try to paint a picture so that you'd have some idea of the magnitude of what these first century Christians are facing and what one day you may face or your Offspring may face down the family line. We really can't relate to what they were facing. Christianity being illegal at that time. But one day as our moral decline continues to move forward and true biblical Christians become more marginalized and our world becomes more secularized, the church will experience it. This cultural decline, this moral decline, has been rapid. Some say we've started down a slippery slope we can't stop. Some say that we've already reached the bottom of the slope. I don't think that's true. The institution of marriage has been redefined by five people. Overruling the definition of marriage for all of human history. Culture of death. Everywhere abortion is legal, euthanasia will take root. Most liberal country in Europe, Belgium, just euthanized a 17-year-old who wanted to die because he had a disease. Racism, front page of the paper. Violence, front page of the paper. The decline of Christianity. Now, whose fault is that? The decline of Christianity, the continued loss of religious freedom around the world, and a news article just this morning from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, a government commission, quote, from the chairman of that commission, uh, Martin Castro. The phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any form of intolerance. And that is all code words for those who stand on Scripture. That's how they changed the words. 
And you can't get angry at others. Because in many ways, it's the church to blame. Let's talk about marriage. Marriage is in the state it's in in our nation because we didn't show the world how precious it is. The church's divorce rate is the same as the rest of the world. Plus, we work, we just work really hard at trying to look like this world, don't we? I mean, I'm 61 years old. I lost some weight recently. I have skinny jeans. The skinny jean, 61-year-old worship leader. (laughs) Go figure. Jokes aside, we work really hard at trying to look like this world. I don't mean that we should look Amish. But we are strangers here. This world is not my home. We take on that culture. Um, My wife and I had a date night Friday night, and we went to a play downtown on King Street. And the play is actually about a church, a mega church pastor who in one of his messages announces that their church will no longer believe in hell. It's offensive to the world, so let's just cut that part out. Aliens and strangers, true believers will become. In the process, our culture will become more and more hostile to us. And we will become more alien and set apart. Must be important to Peter because he he calls this crowd elect exiles in verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then this verse we just read, I urge you as sojourners and exiles must have been important to him. Aliens and strangers. And as exiles... Your sovereign king is not President Obama or whoever the president is at the time. Your constitution is not the constitution of the United States. It's the word of God. You're just passing through here. And why are you exiles? Just tell me why you're exiles. We've said it already because you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Nobody else is his possession. Because you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here's how to go for us. Oh, it may not happen for 50 years. May not happen for a hundred years. Nobody in this room today will be alive probably to see this. But one example among many, I'll use marriage as an example because it's the latest, the latest and greatest change. Next year, by the way, polygamy will probably become in front of the Supreme Court. You realize that? It's on the way. From a case in Utah, believe it or not. And that case was related to a television show, a reality show. It's on the way. Next year, if I preach this message, I'll use polygamy as the example. But some Christian family will want to go foster a child one day. During the interview, somebody will say, do you teach in your home that the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman? And only between a man and a woman and that that man and a woman are man and a woman because they were born that way biologically? Oh, yeah, we teach that. I'm sorry. We can't let you foster a child. And then 20, 50, 100 years later, 
Christian adoption agencies are gone and you want to adopt a child, some Christian family, do you teach in your home? The Bible says marriage is only between a man and a woman. Yeah, we teach the Scripture. We teach God's Word. Oh, I'm sorry. We can't let you adopt a child. And then one day, 20, 50, 100 years later, should the Lord tarry, we pray not, there'll be a knock at your door. And somebody will say, do you teach Scripture in your home? Do you teach that the Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman? And only between a man and a woman? Yes, we do. And we teach many, many other things from Scripture. I'm sorry. We'll have to take your kids from you. When people say they're progressive, that's where the progression leads. It can't be stopped. You can't stop it. And it leads to the same persecution because of your beliefs that Peter's readers were facing. Probably not in the lifetime of anyone here. Should the Lord tarry, that's where we're headed. True believers are becoming more and more marginalized. Frankly, I'm, I'm with I'm around unbelievers a lot. I'm grateful that I've not personally received any hostility from those who think I'm an alien because of my beliefs. But I know those conversations, particularly in the urban areas, those com- those conversations when like-minded people get together to talk about those evil Christians. Those conversations are very hostile. These are great times to be a Christian. There is already an amazing absence of God in America. And it's only going to get worse. These are great times to be a believer. But this is what we face. Last December, two evangelical pastors from the Church of Christ in Sudan were taken from their churches and thrown into jail. Last month, Reverend Cody, it has their full names, but there's no way on earth I could pronounce them. Last month, Reverend Cody and Reverend Zuman were charged with numerous offenses. Now think about all the offenses we'll talk about in a minute that Christians in the first century were accused of. Waging war against the state, espionage, undermining Sudan's constitutional system. Their trial has begun. They could get the death penalty if they're found guilty. That was last week's news. And so these Somalians living in their country, Somalia, are aliens because they are Christians, but Christianity is illegal, so they're illegal aliens, I guess. Like Christians in China, where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere else in the world. Thank God this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And I'm sure Reverend Cody and Reverend Zuman feel the same way. It's been going on a long time. The writer of Hebrews talks about the patriarchs as exiles looking for a new world. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hallelujah. 
And the next reason to abstain from the passions of the flesh for our own personal protection. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Wymouth translates it, restrain the cravings of your lower nature. Robert Montz says, salvation is deliverance from the power of the lower nature, not from its presence. That's good news for us believers, right? One of Satan's biggest lies is that God wants to keep us from all the things in life that are fun. Didn't you think that when you were a kid? Oh, man, God just doesn't want me to have fun. God's some kind of cosmic scrooge. Cut that out. You can't do that. You look like you're having fun. But the only thing God prohibits are those things that if they persist, they cause heartache and suffering. It's for our good. Peter doesn't encourage them to separate themselves from the world. No. He doesn't. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. There are reasons for that. What are those things? Well, he tells us in chapter 4, verse 3 of the same letter. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. Gentiles meaning, in this case, meaning the lost. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And here he's pointing to a crucial aspect of our sanctification as believers. Sinful desires, lust, war against our soul. Sinful desires want to bring us down. They want to capture us and they want to corrupt us and they want to destroy us. And we've got to confront that inward reality. It's a heart matter. Prior to your conversion, you were, that's what Mont says, your deliverance from the power. Prior to your conversion, you were under the power of those things. You were enslaved by those things. But now you have the power to abstain. Continually avoid. Keep away from those things. And the body's desires are not wrong or sinful in themselves, but sin perverts those desires. The Christian is tempted to satisfy those desires contrary to God's will. We fight against them because they're fighting against us. Passions of the flesh, desires of the flesh. And this, I said that was good news a little while ago. This is important for us to grasp because it teaches us that for those of us who have the Spirit of God in us, we are not exempt from those fleshly desires. And they can't be, they can't be defined or described simply as sexual sins or sins of the body like drunkenness. Because we see the very first verse of this chapter. Chapter 2, Peter tells those people to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Social sins. And how deep is this struggle? How deep is it? It wages war against your soul. They must be strong if they're waging war. They must be resisted and they must be conquered. And it is easy to see by Peter's words that it won't be easy. Martin Luther says, As soon as the spirit and faith enter our hearts, we become so weak that we think we cannot beat down the least imaginations and sparks of temptation. And we see nothing but sin in ourselves from the crown of the head even to the foot. 
For before we believed, we walked according to our own lust. But now the Spirit has come and would purify us. And a conflict arises with the devil, the flesh, and the world opposed and the world opposes faith. If thou then hast wicked thoughts, thou shouldst not on this account despair, only be on guard, that thou be not taken prisoner by them. The whole person is in view, showing sinful desires. And if they're allowed to win, if they all overrule your soul, they will destroy you. Paul shares the struggle with us. Galatians 5. 16. I don't think I've got it on the screen. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Peter David says, The knowledge that they do not belong does not lead to withdrawal. But to their taking their standards of behavior, not from the culture in which they live, but from their home culture of heaven, so that their life always fits the place they are headed to, rather than their temporary lodging in this world. Okay, that's the first half of the message. The positive side. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Three reasons for such conduct in this verse, too. First, our living environment among the Gentiles, among the lost. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We live in a fishbowl with everybody else. We can't go and hide in some monastery. That monasticism is the most unbiblical of, of orders. And one of Peter's favorite words for expressing the life of faith is conduct yourselves. We see that two times in chapter 1. Two times in chapter 3, conduct yourselves. Conduct your lives in such a way that they might see your good deeds. And there's order to this. Verse 11 has to come before verse 12. Passions are desires. They have to do with the heart. The heart has to be right first before the conduct can be made godly. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite, right? There are a few of you in here. You join the church. You you read the Bible. You you try to clean up your act. You be nice to people, but your heart hasn't changed. And without your heart desires being dealt with, your actions will eventually fall flat and you'll fall into sin. And that war against your soul will win. So good conduct is not just mere outward display. It deals with the inner man first. Eleven had to come before twelve. The second reason for this conduct is because of our slandered reputation. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, unbelievers viewed Christians with suspicion, even hostility, because we don't conform to the world in which they live in. We try, 
The church has done a real good job trying to conform to the world that they live in. But those who are living godly biblical lives are viewed with suspicion and even hostility. We see that verse 3 we looked at of chapter 4 already, but then there's another verse after that. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the, flood of, in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Some of those charges back in the first century, disloyalty to the emperor. I have scripture proofs for all of these. We won't see disloyalty to the emperor, promotion of illegal customs, defaming of the pagan gods. We saw in Acts 19, general troublemaking. We see in Acts 17, teaching that slaves are free. Oh, atheists because they are no, they had, yeah, Christians were called atheists because they had no idols. In the middle of the first century, a distinct minority, object of slander and persecution, refused to participate in emperor worship. And some think that quite possibly, 1 Peter was written after A.D. 64. We're not really sure because that was when Nero began to persecute the Christians and blame them for burning Rome. And that's quite possible. That was the case. That's why he talks about the slander. Talking about you as evildoers. And then there's a third reason, our unselfish mission. They might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We know that we're supposed to give some sort of verbal explanation for our beliefs. Peter says that in the very next chapter, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. But the other aspect of our response... It's to keep your conduct honorable. Why? That they may see it. They may glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what is the day of visitation? What is that? I don't know. Most other commentators don't know. I'll give you some options. It could be judgment day. It could be the day that particular person is saved. They see your good works. They glorify God. They repent and believe and they're saved. That could be the day of visitation. We don't know. It could be a good day or a bad day. The idea here is that our conduct will contradict their slander and remove the obstacles to faith in unbelievers. So that some of them, at least some of them, would be converted and believe the gospel. Peter didn't go, this is what we would do today. He didn't go create a campaign so that believers would be instructed on the right words to say to defend themselves. Peter didn't go to Kinko's and and, and, and print out some tracts that would defend the morality of Christians. Just live lives of goodness. Just love other people so that the goodness might be evident throughout all of society. And the transformation of their behavior would contradict all the false charges. Pastor Greg told us last week that as Christians, we're holy priests living amongst the profane public. So our greatest concern is to counteract the 
slander from the public. The slander against the Christian faith by magnifying the work of God in and through our lives so that others might see it and come to faith in Christ. It's for this, for this very purpose, that God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ramsey Michael says, this brief section sketches Peter's battle plan for the inevitable confrontation between Christians and Roman society. The conflict in society is won not by aggressive behavior, but by good conduct and good works yet to be defined. Peter's vision is that the exemplary behavior of Christians will change the minds of their accusers and in effect overcome evil with good. And you know Peter's thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew 5:16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter and Matthew quoting Jesus here, seeing the good works of believers bring the expression of the glory of God, at least in some. And that's the introduction to this section. Peter says, conquer the evil desires you struggle with. Live is my paraphrase. You must live model lives with the kind of good deeds that will make unbelievers take notice. And you do this and it will be a defense for any suggestion that you are practicing evil. Your good deeds are intended for mission. You get that? Your good deeds are intended for mission. So that the unbelievers you encounter might experience the same thing we saw in verses 9 and 10. Your good deeds are to be for mission so that some who see your good deeds might glorify God, repent and believe, and God called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our assignment. Don't forget that. Let's pray. We sing a hymn in a moment. During that hymn, you have questions or you need uh, someone to pray with you, you're encouraged to, while we sing, just to make your way to the back. Pastor Greg and others will be back there to receive you. Pray with you. We do that while we sing in a moment. Father, thank you for your word. May we not be depressed or sad when the persecution comes our way. May we not see it as a problem, but as an opportunity to share the glorious riches of what we have in Christ with those around us. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.